You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It seemed like any other week of television, September 23rd to 27th, 1990. Various programs, The Simpsons, Fresh Prince, Cheers, Full House, Seinfeld, Beverly Hills 90210, ALF, Law and Order, some things don't change. When something very different happened. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Americans, and a lot of Americans, tuned in to public broadcasting, to PBS, for a series about the Civil War. It was a very different series, created by Ken Burns, narrated by this author, David McCullough. Pittsburgh is a city of bridges. It has, there are more bridges in Pittsburgh than there are in Paris. And His familiar voice would narrate the entire series which would be watched by 40 million viewers and become an icon of public broadcasting. Fiddle music from the Civil War would adorn all of the wonderful episodes. We can't play the song Ashokan Farewell because it's copyrighted and actually not a song from the Civil War at all written in the 1980s, but it's something that Ken Burns, the creator of the Civil War series, heard and really liked. And it sounded something like the fiddle at that time. It also just echoed the kind of sentimentality that Ken Burns wanted in his depiction of the Civil War. The show lasted four days, 11 hours, and it had several parts. The first episode, The Cause, starts in 1861, and the last, The Better Angels of Our Nature, 1865. Each one has sub-episodes that there were title cars for. All night are we free. A house divided. The Meteor. Secessionitis, traitors and patriots, gunmen, Manassas, a thousand-file front, honorable manhood, forever free, the Lincolnites, the ironclads, the peninsula, simply murder, northern lights, the kingdom of Jones, under the shade of trees, a dust-covered man, the third day, she ranks me, Vicksburg, bottom rail on top, a river of death, the promised land, can those be men, most hallowed ground, Appomattox. 
when it was over, people were amazed. One reaction that Ken Burns got was from Colin Powell, who he had sent it to. And Colin Powell talked to Burns about how his family was glued to the TV for hours. President Bush, H.W. Bush at this time, invites Ken Burns to the White House for a special viewing. It's 1990. It's the end of the Cold War. Looking at things differently, the Civil War is very foreign, but it is a time when the world is changing, and it's a look back to a war that also changed the world. My mom died when I was little, and a psychologist once told me, look at what I did for a living. I wake the dead. So said Ken Burns. It's important to note what he did not do in the Civil War documentary. You don't see modern people dressed up like Civil War soldiers. You don't see reenactments. And while there are some tasteful maps showing the locations of armies, there's not a lot of that kind of moving arrow stuff of military history. There's no fake Lincoln wearing a top hat and a beard, though Sam Waterston did give him an excellent voice, just as Morgan Freeman voice-acted Frederick Douglass and other actors filled in vocal roles. But without reenactments, without images of those clashing soldiers, and with no film, no one to interview who was there, the last Civil War soldier died in 1959. How to fill viewers' eyes? Well, visually, Ken Burns had developed something that was as simple as umbrella lights and a roving camera. He had hundreds of thousands of archival photographs that existed in various collections that he had access to. But photographs are still, and looking at them is boring. This is TV. So he would slowly zoom in on the photographs, as if you were a person with a magnifying glass looking at them. Not only does it make it visually interesting, but each microsecond that you're viewing the photograph seems a little bit different. I mean, not quite a, a moving image like a movie, but it's a little bit different. The camera focus becomes important. Look at the soldier's eyes, the musket, the torn uniform, the scars of a slave. Details become clearer at the end of the zoom. And as Ken Burns explains it, if you show a picture of an innocent-looking young man and then zoom down to his pockets where there are two revolvers, you've told the story. He also uses lots of letters. Much of the research for the film involved looking at these photographs. And as his brother Rick Burns, also a documentary maker who had a role in this film, explained that his grandmother had once told him, if you look for snakes, you'll never find them. So he'd casually look at photographs, not looking at photographs with an index, but casually looking at photographs and then filing them for later use. And I think that's one of the things that when I read that, I immediately thought that that's one of the things that made that Civil War series great. They use lots of letters, letters from Union soldiers, Confederate soldiers, Mary Chestnut, a South Carolinian woman 
who had a diary, Frederick Douglass and his letters, quotes from authors of the time, like Walt Whitman and Nathaniel Hawthorne. And they were read by celebrities, even author celebrities, Arthur Miller, Garrison Keillor, Kurt Vonnegut were among the letter readers. Studs Terkel. And he would use professors that would discuss events that occurred during the Civil Wars. They discussed the various battles and things. Um, Barbara Fields presented an African-American perspective. The Civil War, she said, could have had no redeeming qualities whatsoever. If not, that it picked up the cause of emancipation, and that gave it a reason, and it became a moral war. But arguably, the most famous contributor was Shelby Foote of Greenville, Mississippi, who would tell little little stories, little vignettes, give people kind of a, not a 30,000-foot not a view, but little notes that would help. Burns talked about how he would look off into the distance and say something like, we're used to 10% casualties in battles. Many Civil War battles had 30% or more. These were bloody engagements. Or he talked about a man who was asked when he was taken prisoner by the Northern Army, why are you fighting? And he said, I never owned any slaves. I'm fighting because you're here. One reviewer said that Shelby Foote was telling the Civil War story as if the events happened on his front porch. All this came together well, but that wasn't clear from the beginning. Here's Ward, who said when Burns approached him, he said, I thought there was no way to do this. It was going to be hokey. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, You have to 
understand about the Civil War series in 1990, that there had been nothing but movies like, say, Gone with the Wind or some very celebratory movies of one side, some books. Obviously, as we, there's no film of the Civil War. It wasn't an event that was as much in the American consciousness in 1990 as it was after it because of what Ken Burns did. That's why uh, the people thought that Burns was crazy. His own father asks Ken Burns, like, what are you, what are you working on next? Oh, I'm going to do a documentary of the Civil War. What part? His father asks. And when Ken Burns says all of it, his father just walked out of the room. <laughs> One of the, Funder said that he thought the idea of using these photos and zooming in on them, you know, that would work for about three hours, but not for 11. Ken Burns felt strongly that narrative would carry it out. After the Second World War, he felt narrative fell out of fashion, assessing Freudian motives, Marxist economic interpretation, symbolism, deconstruction, semiotics, all of these things were in the discussion, but narrative he said, is the tortoise that crosses the finish line before the exhausted hare. The stories that would be told would be told in a certain way, sometimes with the sweet fiddle playing a Civil War marching band. He instructed the narrators to speak like voices spoken in or near your ear at midnight at dark. Like Someone's trying to tell you something sitting on the porch next to you. It's very urgent. It's very important to them. But you're close by, so they're speaking softly. In using Shelby Foote and Barbara Fields, Burns said that he was using two very different points. Fields, for instance, wanted to talk about the Civil War as a piece, as a movement, Foot thought it was very much a discrete process, a decided matter, one point in history. Fields said that the Civil War wasn't really about battles. I disagree, Burns said. It was. If Gettysburg is the biggest battle fought in North America, we should know about that. Arguably the one that became most famous from the Civil War, besides Ken Burns himself, I think, was author Shelby Foote, whose books, which had been known, uh, just started flying off the shelves because he just had great stories. Uh, His take could be controversial on a lot of points, and it, it really is a big difference between 1990 and 2017. Here's Foot though, on the Confederate flag and addressing some of the controversy around it. I regret very much what has happened about the flag. Uh, the flag uh, that people look at now is a flag that was carried during the demonstrations against civil rights. It was carried by Ku Klux Klansmen, all that kind of thing, and that's what it represents to a great many people. And I don't wonder that they're feeling pain and wanting to take it down. I understand perfectly well they do that. But to my mind, they're misidentifying that flag. Uh, that flag represents many good things. So the Shelby Foote argument is that, you know, you're looking at the battle flag and thinking about the 50s and 60s and civil rights and today and pickup trucks and uh, people, racism and neo-Confederates and things like that that aren't positives. But there were many good things about the flag, perhaps the self-determined, you know, democracy, self-determination of a people in a geographic area, 
fighting together and remembering war dead, you know, some more common values. Even this statement that he understands some of the controversy would be much more controversial with today's politics. There's just no doubt about it, because I think the counterargument to Shelby Foote would be, well, yeah, uh, this flag might have had some different meaning. But two things. One, we're still concerned about it as a symbol of those events in the civil rights movement. That's why it should be taken down. It's a more modern example. You know, very often when you discuss history and politics and you bring up old things, people will be like, well, the more modern things are more important. I don't know if it's always true, but they are certainly powerful because there's recency of memory of it. There are many people alive who participated in the civil rights movement and uh, in some cases suffered for it. The other thing is that even if you're going back to the Confederacy and the self-determination and democracy, a region deciding this is what we want for ourselves and without interference, I think for a lot of modern viewers, they're not going to like that view whatsoever as well and not going to want to preserve any symbol of a group of people who are rallying against the Union. And you have to translate yourself back into the time of secession to understand how some states had want to secede. The Constitution had not been amended in 61 years. This was the First Amendment, the, 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 the Emancipation Amendment. It was the First Amendment in 61 years of the Constitution. And absolutely the First Amendment that ever had anything to do with anybody's private property. So they saw this, this amendment coming. Uh, they said, we don't want any part of this union. We want to get out of it. Okay, now that's going to be controversial as well because, you know, the point is what kind of property were you talking about? And then if you – it is very important to be fair to Shelby Foote's point that you need to translate history and understand things at the time. But there were people at the time who realized that this was a practice that was wrong and this was a – political decision occurring across many states. It, this isn't a simple example of going back in time and and everybody was of the same opinion. Um, so it, it, Shelby Foote's more helpful, I think, and more agreeable to modern voices on this point. And people who say slavery had nothing to do with the war, just as wrong as the people who say slavery had everything to do with the war. That was a very complicated civic thing. Uh, Robert Toombs or somebody once gave the best definition of that war I've ever heard. He said it was a war of one form of society against another form of society. And because one of those forms of society included chattel slavery, and the other side didn't, except to a, a, a limited extent, uh, it's always been identified as a war over slavery. Uh, believe me, no soldier on either side gave a damn about the slaves. Uh, they were fighting for other reasons entirely in their minds. Southerners thought they were fighting the Second American Revolution. Northerners thought they were fighting to hold the Union together. And that held true throughout the whole war, except for some people who were absolute partisans on both sides. Fire eaters in South Carolina and abolitionists in Massachusetts. But does he get it, in a sense? Okay, so there's so many other reasons in their minds. The soldiers in their minds weren't 
fighting about slavery. And first of all, is that even an accurate measure of why a war started? Very often the soldiers sent to the front are not the decision makers. So the best um, things to look at are who instigated the war, who gave the first commands, why did the first state, South Carolina, secede? And there, there's pretty good evidence. But even if you're looking at the soldiers' minds, uh, so to speak, all of the things you're talking about, though, relate to slavery. Maybe it's not in front of mind, but back of mind. So if you're fighting the second American Revolution, for what reason? To preserve your institutions. What are they? Slavery. I, I don't think it's useful. To, it's almost like a logical game where if you're not talking about slavery, in, in three minutes we could get there. In fact, Ken Burns offers his viewpoint on this matter. If you read South Carolina's Articles of Secession, the first state to secede, the birthplace of secession, the home of the original fire eaters, as they were called, in reaction to Abraham Lincoln, a moderate's election, they do not mention states' rights. They mention slavery. 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 And that we have to remember. Now, he's going to expand on that, and I also think Ken Burns is going to make the case for war as calamity, which I really think is the overwhelming theme of his series. It is much more complicated than that, but essentially the reason why we murdered each other, two, more than 2% of our population, 750,000 Americans died. That's more than all the wars from the revolution through Afghanistan combined was over essentially the issue of slavery. You know, when you hear stats like that, you have to raise the question, do we as moderns even understand what the Civil War and its impact must have been like? What somebody like Lincoln as president during that time must have felt the gravity of each action that the country was taking and how it jettisoned the country into doing things that it hadn't done before because it was so tragic. It was so tragic, horrifying to some, earth-shattering. And though World War II was certainly another item that you could point to, the Great Depression and things like this, it's it leaves you wondering if we have an equivalent. Historians have weighed in. Uh, historians respond to the Ken Burns Civil War as a, as it was a book that was published soon after. Richard Toplin, film historian, loves the film, loved the way that it showed war, breathed life into it, tells different size, people, women, white Southerners, African Americans, New Englanders, average people, and politicians. Support for civil rights is implied in the way that Ken Burns tells the story. And for 1990, gets in a lot more of the African narrative, African American narrative than other programs do. Historian Gary Gallagher salutes the ability of Burns to fire the imagination of Americans. He finds fault with too much focus on the Eastern theater of war, not enough discussion about politics and how generals in the North particularly were replaced due to politics. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Catherine Clinton, historian, finds that this series gave short shrift to women. Women disguised themselves as men so that they could fight. That could have been brought up. They organized hospitals, and they taught freed slaves to read. The Civil War impacted the home front, but you don't see it at all in the Civil War series. Leon Litwick felt that not enough of African Americans were covered. Not enough of the contributions of those slaves who simply ran away from plantations, who took the tools, who fought in the Union Army. Emancipation, he says, was not a gift from Lincoln. It was taken in most cases. And Eric Fawner says that given the choice of historical illumination or nostalgia, Burns often opts for nostalgia. He should, Fawner said, have covered Reconstruction. Because removing Reconstruction from the Civil War and ending there at 1865, something that seems uncontroversial, but was, gives the impression that the end of the Civil War was romantic reunion. There are other criticisms that come from historians, and one of them is that Ken Burns' Civil War doesn't tell enough of the run-up to the Civil War and the story that about territorial expansion and the various debates of that and the, the conflicts that led up to the Civil War. One of the foremost critics recently was in 2011, James Lundberg's complaints in Slate about the documentary. He is a history professor, and he raised the point that each year teaching history, he gets lots of students who are interested in the Civil War, but they have the exact wrong vision of it. He says that he appreciates Burns' achievement, but disapprove the notes of the sentimental tone and the tidy vision of national consensus being misleading and reductive. 15-minute portrait 
of slavery's role in the coming of war being nearly negated by Shelby Foote's 15-second anecdotes about a ragged Confederate who obviously didn't own any slaves. A counter to that in the National Review by Gregory Butcher says that Lundberg's complaints, like many currently raised against Confederate statues, strike me as misleading and reductive. We might start by considering the documentary's sentimental tone. Now, sentimental appeal as a tool of rhetoric is not the same as cogent argument, and one should immediately admit the obvious. The documentary is manipulative. Upon repeating viewings, one sees Burns tipping his hand, not only by using the fiddle music to mark elegiac content, but also by artfully placing particularly affecting words or images on the screen. The farewell hits the most wrenching part of its melody. Robert E. Lee is presented as courtly. White Southerners were jealous of their honor, prone to fight over aspirations to it. This is Lundberg's conclusions. Butcher says, perhaps Foote is too cavalier because he seems wearied of combated the reductive argument that the South fought only to preserve slavery, but he economically makes an effective and truthful point that needs to be made. Burns' choice to complicate the picture does not mean he is letting the Confederates off the hook for directly or indirectly defending slavery. While Lundberg said in 2011 this, Civil War reflects the attitudes of its time, 1990. I suppose that while it may have fit that time and its needs, it did not fit a mere 20 years later in 2011. Butcher says, I think we need Burns' humanizing vision more than ever in 2017. Its sentimental depiction of reconciliation, even among men who had tried to blow one another to bits and often succeeded, would blunt the all-or-nothing rhetoric of those today who wish to impose a neat, drastic solution to the real problem Confederate statues pose. Lundberg says the film's powerful call to national unity in the face of profound division seemed ideally suited to the bitter post-Vietnam cultural climate. In 1989, in his inaugural address, George H.W. Bush had asserted the final lesson of Vietnam is that no great nation can long afford to be sundered by a memory. Interest in the Civil War, which had been growing since the mid-1970s, suggested that America could in fact be united by a war. But for all its appeal, the Civil War is a deeply misleading and reductive film that often loses historical reality in the midst of Burns' sentimental vision and the romance. You can easily forget that one side was not fighting for, but against the very things that Burns claimed the war so gloriously achieved. Confederates, you might need reminding after seeing it, were fighting not for the unification of the nation, but for its dissolution. I think I chose this topic, well, first of all, because Ken Burns has proceeded on with many other documentaries, jazz, baseball, and in those two, by the way, some of the historical criticisms, you know, had some effect because included much more African-Americans in baseball and uh, women in jazz. And of course, jazz is a subject very close to African-American history. So even in doing it, uh, that was a statement. But he also uh, did a recent digital remastering of the series and didn't make much changes. And when he's been asked about, like, would he make changes now if he was doing the Civil War, he's generally said he would do it the same way. 
But I also think it's important to talk about something like the history of a history, the history of a documentary, historiography, you know, in a sense. How do you talk about an event and how does that change over time? Because it's so important to what I do. My history can beat up your politics. And I find myself sympathetic to Ken Burns because you've got multiple responsibilities, which I feel he balanced well in the Civil War. That there's lots of interpretations of events. So he had the various professors. You have to bring people back to the time. As Shelby Foote talks about translating. Translating means you can have your modern values, but you have to translate what that means into that time and, and that culture. Um, using those letters, that's helpful. Now, People spoke in a way. They wrote in a way. They were there. Were there were there was romance. Some there was a there was a cavalierism, uh, particularly in the South. That's going to come across in those letters and documents. And how do you write a series without incorporating some of that into the story you're telling? We're trying to do the best we can to bring up the ghosts of history and to tell a story the way that it would have been told if somebody that possessed all the knowledge at the time was telling you about it. It's not an easy task. And it is subject to debate, no doubt. And any time you do any kind of history, particularly on a big subject like the Civil War, there's going to be debate. The question then becomes... Does the fact that there can be different interpretations that one could look at a documentary like Ken Burns and say that was too much, that was too romantic, it was too sentimental, it's wrong, does that mean that you don't do it at all? And there I I would say no. I mean, does it mean that anyone can never be uh, objective at all? And I would say no to that as well. You include as many voices as you can. You get it as accurate as you can. You assume that the viewers are thinking human beings who can make their own interpretations about it and also can consult other sources. And as I think he's done, he's created a very good visual document that for people looking into the Civil War can consult back with in history, along with other sources. But it's more than that. This is a very dicey issue today because we have the issue of the Confederate monuments and there's neo-Confederate arguments being made on on, on the internet. You have kind of like libertarians saying, hey, this is a libertarian issue. The South wanted to leave. It was their democratic choice and the Northerners came down and invaded their territory. Uh, and that's something you're seeing debated more than I think we we had prior to the Internet, where, where so many different points of view are given more of a forum. On the other hand, the Civil War is seen as something that's an evil war from the southern side because it involves slavery, because slavery is wretched, and because we're engaged as a society now for a lot of people to root out injustices and to create level playing fields. Slavery is not just, even as a historical object, is just abhorrent, abhorrent as it ever was, but it takes on an added level of horror because... 
We are trying to correct other injustices that stemmed from it now. But I still think some balance is required. And Ken Burns' Civil War does give you this interpretation of the history, that the Civil War was a terrible, tragic event felt by people across the country who mourned the losses of those who died. It was also an important event in shaping the nation. When he sought to get funding from the film, General Motors was considering it, and they asked, what what is this film about, Kenneth? He said, prior to the war, it was the United States are. And after the war, it was the United States is. That's an important part of history to tell along with everything else. What we need to do is perpetually tread this neural pathway to a better, higher nature of ourselves, so says Ken Burns. There are no cycles of history. You are not doomed to repeat yourself. Thanks for listening, and thanks for subscribing to the podcast. 